Hello and welcome to episode 22 of the Alone Podcast. This week we have with us Wonia Thibault. Wonia was a participant on season six of Alone. So Wonia, I know you're super busy. You've got a lot going on all the time. So thank you so much for being willing to sit down and take time to share your stories and your life and your experiences with us today. Yeah, absolutely. It's my pleasure. Well, and what we do to get started, it's kind of become a, a habit because it makes it really easy to just chase rabbit holes, is going to go ahead and let you just introduce yourself and who you are and give your own bio because who better to talk about you than you. So go ahead and just share with us who you are and and how you would um, present yourself. Great. My name is Wonia Thibault and I grew up in Northeastern California and am someone who always Felt like I was born in the wrong time, felt like I was supposed to be living a life much more deeply connected to the land and the skills that humans spent their entire history developing. And so always felt a little out of place, out of time. And when I was starting as a teenager, I started being interested in making my own clothes and hiking and harvesting a few wild plants that I knew of that I could turn into teas and such. Just always had a drive to to live a life more aligned with the world that I found all around me rather than the human created world. And also really, really devoted to the natural world in times of, in terms of hiking and identifying wildflowers and birds and what have you. So as soon as I was off on my own, I really threw myself into both studying biology and studying ancestral skills. And it was when I was 19 that I met my first real teachers of ancestral skills. And it completely changed my life in the course of my life and realizing that there was a way to merge my two passions, that of biology and natural history of the world around me and actually crafting and making the substance of my life with my own two hands came together in this really beautiful way. So that was, that was back in 1995 and I've never looked back that's been the main thrust of my life for quite a long time now <laughs> yeah it's as I was reading your your bio um, on your website uh, which we'll we'll give it in just a second we'll get you a chance to talk about all your stuff but as I was reading your bio that was one of the things that was that impressed upon me and and that I've seen with quite a few people is at a very early age uh, the desire to, and at this point I, I do this every time. I'm like, I don't want to call it like a different path because who's different, right? <laughs> Whose path is different? Um, this is chicken the path or the that egg. humans were on for all of our millions of years of evolutionary history. The, the current modern path is actually the more different one. Yeah, exactly. And so as I've talked, I'm like, you know, I don't really know how to say this anymore. Um, but I, I, it was impressed by me that you really did from a very early age, you, you kind of took a, a different direction and a more, I would say, a more connected direction and, and you know, went with something different. Um, what do you think fostered that for you from, a, from that young age? Obviously, as you get older, you know, but when we're younger, it seems like there's a lot of things that impress upon us. I'm just curious if there was something or someone that helped you gather that when you were younger. Well, I would say it was two things. One, both of my parents were very outdoorsy. So before I even had the ability to choose what I wanted to do in my spare time, I was getting dragged into the woods and out on hikes and such from from as long as I can remember. My mother was in the Sierra Club. My dad was an endurance runner. So I was out there with them all the time. So that was a huge influence in terms of being outside and relating to the world. That said, my interests were really different than those of my parents. And... uh, you know, an interest in biology 
and really engaging the natural world and learning about it was a driving passion for me for a long time. I also was quite a bookworm. And so a lot of my a lot of my reading as a child was really influential on me, particularly Scott O'Dell's The Island of the Blue Dolphins, the story of a young woman living by herself um, for years and years and years and having to make, do, harvest all of the things that she needed. Uh, and then also the Little House on the Prairie book. So Laura Ingalls Wilder's stories, not the show. I hated the show because it made a mockery of the books, but the the books themselves. So, so I would say my reading and then growing up in a, uh, very rural place and with parents who got me outdoors a lot. That's cool. Um, well, now it's funny. I need to start kind of a, a section on the website or something about the Alone Podcast reading list because every, <laughs> every, pretty much almost every episode, it seems like every couple of episodes, there's some good book recommendations um, that we get. So I've got this growing list of things, of books, on top of my personal growing list of books that I need to, to take note of. Um, so thank you for sharing that. And I guess we'll take a second. You talked about kind of your biology and what you're doing today. So we'll take a quick cut here and let you just share where people can find you, where they can access your information and, and how people can, can learn from you and, and grow from you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have, at this point, I have several different websites, but my main website is buckskinrevolution.com. And that has links to my online courses as well as my in in-person courses. So I am on social media on YouTube and Instagram and Facebook and also on Patreon and Cameo and what have you. So lots of different ways to find me and engage with what I do. Uh, at the start of the pandemic, I started teaching online because of course we weren't having in-person gatherings anymore. And so that really launched me into a whole new way of sharing what I do. And so I teach at Buckskin Revolution Academy online. And that has been really amazing in terms of being able to share the skills with a much broader audience and so many more people than I could ever reach otherwise. So while at first I started that as just kind of a one-off just during the pandemic to give people a little bit of empowerment when people were feeling really frightened and powerless, but it's become a really thriving online community of a bunch of people who are regularly posting about what they're up to and asking questions and become this much wider network of people supporting one another in their skills journey, as well as myself teaching. So it's been really, really beautiful. So these days, that's been one of my main thrusts. And then I also have several books that I'm working on. So lots going on, always too much going on, which is why my book projects are taking forever to complete. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what we'll do is we'll make sure that, that we have links to all of your socials and all of your websites and your courses and everything in the show notes in the description. So if you're out there and you're interested in, in seeing more of what Mania is doing and, and learning from her, go ahead and do that. Um, well, yeah. dang it. <laughs> we, we went over this right before we started, and I knew I even took notes um, to make sure I didn't mess that up. And but if you've had it in your head for a long time as something different, then it can be hard. <laughs> By the yeah. time we're done, we will we'll get that all squared away. I apologize <laughs> about that. Um, no continue to smack me kindly upside the head, and, and we'll get it in there. I'll be um, kind about it. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that, and I apologize. I will, I will try to get no that worries. in there. So... With your courses, I, I know that something that we see a lot from you, Ania, and obviously the buckskin name is a lot of leather work, but what other type of things are you teaching and, and what kind of things can people expect when they come to your courses and to your website? Is it is it all leather work or what else are you putting out there? 
No, actually, and you bring up a good point because I'm actually in the process of trying to decide if I want to shift business names because Buckskin is just a tiny part of what I do. And I use that name with the idea that Buckskin is kind of a visual representation of a return to these skills that have been practiced by humankind for all of our history. Things like wild foods, which are a big focus for me, wild foods, herbal medicines, fiber arts, basketry, you know, bow and arrows, pottery, all of the ancestral skills, and also homestead and off-grid living is a big focus for me. That said, I would definitely say that a big focus for me has been not just the physical skills, but really getting back to that deeper ancestral place inside us that knows that we are a part of the natural landscape rather than being in this modern human mindset that nature is out there and then there's us. So a lot of my work is about nature connection and ways to draw out those things that we evolved, for example, our senses. You know, we're so visual and audio in our modern human world because we're attached to screens and podcasts like this, but we've lost a lot of our other senses, right? So trying to find ways, rewilding is one one kind of common moniker for this kind of thing, but, but yeah, kind of finding our way back to what it means to be human in a different context than the one that most of us live in today, or finding ways to reinsert those pieces of connection into our modern lives. So a lot of folks focus on ancestral skills in a way that's like going out into the woods and going totally stone age. And I think that's really awesome. But I also feel like that's not necessarily realistic for the vast majority of folks today. And when I was really attached to stone age or nothing, I found it really isolating and frankly depressing because it was it was so hard and not hard in order to do, but hard to integrate it to a modern life and someone who still wants to maintain connections to the the people in my life who don't want to live that way. So which is not to say that it isn't also challenging to live Stone Age. But I just found that that wasn't realistic and that when we tend to set that high a goal for ourselves, we're more likely to just get disenchanted and walk away from all of these skills. So I try to teach in ways that we can integrate these ancestral skills into our modern lives in a way that makes us feel more whole, more grounded, healthier in our bodies and our psyches and gives us that sense of satisfaction and empowerment that knows that we're part of something greater rather than we're just living this, you know, short-term puny human life that's really, really different than humans have ever lived before. Yeah, this concept of connection, um, connectedness comes up on so many of these these conversations. I'm curious for you, um, you, you teach obviously, and you just talked about that, I guess that a struggle, it seems it's a struggle, but it doesn't have to be probably between living these two different ways. Uh, I think there's ways to to try and make our lives become more harmonious, right? Even if you live in the middle of a city. So I'm just curious if you have any advice or what your thoughts are for someone who, like myself, right? I work a normal, normal, there's that word again, right? <laughs> I work a currently normal, traditional type of career job and, um, you know, nine to five type of a deal. I live in a city. Thankfully, I'm in a really great spot. But when you talk to someone who is in that type of lifestyle, how do you help them or what do you think they can do to help themselves connect as kind of a little teaser, I guess, for what you do on a more robust basis with your courses? Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the big things is to spend more time outside with your phone off uh, or not with you. 
and really engaging a sense of curiosity and a sense of paying attention. And I have a lot of ways that I try to encourage that, but connecting deeply with the plant and the bird worlds are really wonderful tools because plants and birds are two things that tend to be pretty ubiquitous. Birds obviously being able to fly, they get into all kinds of places. And we have, you know, we have pigeons and house bears and even peregrine falcons in cities. And even in the most urban areas, we often have weeds coming up through cracks in the sidewalks or in empty lots. And a lot of the weeds that are really common, particularly in human disturbed environments, are edibles and medicinals. So by starting to learn more about the plants and then looking at the larger patterns in the plant worlds and seeing how we can learn about an environment through what the plants have to tell us, for example, knowing what plants are indicators of water or indicators of human disturbance or are pollinated by the wind versus pollinated by insects. Those are ways that we start to engage more deeply and draw out those other senses and those present time observations, as opposed to looking something up on our phone that bring us into a, a different way of being. And it actually is akin to a meditative state. So it means that we are present in the present moment. We're grounded. We're not thinking about our to-do list or, you know, what we're going to watch after we're done with work or what have you. So that's really, really transformative. And the more we build those little habits, the more we find ourselves doing that more and more often in our daily lives. All of a sudden, we're paying attention to what the weather's doing. We're staying outside a little bit longer when we're walking from the car to our house and we're noticing what's starting to be an indicator of the turning of seasons. You know, what little greens are starting to poke their way up, showing us that winter is loosening its hold, right? And it also is, helps us be more in tune with our own body as part of nature. So those are two tools that I use, but there's lots of different tools and practices. And that's also part of what is really beautiful about doing this in groups and being in community because humans are hugely, hugely social creatures. So if we're trying to do something on our own and there's no one else in our world that we have to talk about that, we're not really likely to keep it up. So doing it in the context of courses and then the, the online community I've created where you can then go and talk about what you were seeing and read about what other people are seeing and you're getting this positive feedback of engagement with people who are excited and encouraged and inspired by what we're doing sets up this positive feedback loop, which is the opposite of what we tend to get in our, our modern society and when we choose something, quote, different than what most people are doing. Yeah, that's neat. Um, is that the... I'm going to want to guess here. Is this kind of the topic of one of the books you're working on? Yeah. I mean, it's wrapped up in all of the books that I work on. <laughs> yeah. I say this, this seems like it would be a, a great, a great book topic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned it too. So I'm always, I'm someone who I've, I felt pretty connected with nature for most of my life. I've grown up, you know, doing outdoors things, hunting, fishing, camping, hiking, you know, all that type of stuff. And, um, we had lived in a condo for a while. So in, in high density housing in the middle of a city and I was still doing all of those things, but that was like a, a weekend excursion or, you know, my daily life. Most of my time was spent in a car, in an office or in my, in my house. And now we live in a place where we have a little bit of, of, you know, in a city, it's a little bit of land. Right. And I can spend way more time outside and it's been fantastic to your point to, you know, be able to see the patterns of the squirrels that live in our neighborhood, to be able to see 
where the, I think it's some sort of a hawk. I haven't taken out binoculars to pay attention yet, but to see that there's a hawk nesting in our cell tower that's right across the street <laughs> from our backyard, right? Um, to see those types of things, to be able to monitor the position of the sun in the sky. I mean, all simple things, but just helping you remember that there's something much greater and much more grounding uh, holding this whole thing together than, you know, the concrete and, and houses that we live in. Well, and that's exactly it, right? Because all of our senses, everything about who we are, the bodies we live in, the way our nervous system works and the way our minds work is because we evolved to have to pay attention to those things, for those mm -hmm. things to be part of, you know, deeply, deeply ingrained in us. And so I think that a lot of the malcontent and dis-ease, and I mean both physical and, you know, mental, emotional of our modern society is because we aren't connected in those ways. And our, our bodies know that there's something off when we're not paying attention, when we're not feeling connected. So that's really the thrust of my work is the ways that these simple things radically transform how we feel in our bodies, in our in our hearts, in our daily lives. So you, you've talked a few times about these other senses, right? So that we are hyper-focused currently on our sight and sound because of how we live. I'm curious about your thoughts. You mentioned our, you know, honing our other senses and how they come back into play. Can you expand on that a little bit and elaborate what you mean and, and what senses, I mean, I'm, I, I can think about it, right? But what do you mean when you say that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly a sense of smell and being able to tell, you know, how if you pay attention, you can tell if it's rained recently by the smell of ideally the ground and the living things. But often it's the smell of wet pavement <laughs> in our world that we recognize. Right. But there are all kinds of things that we don't that we don't give ourselves the opportunity to really experience. Taste is another big one because we tend to overload our palates with you know, refined foods and artificial flavorings and what have you. And we miss a lot of the wilder flavors, the subtlety and, and bitter is one taste that we have that most people never experience. And a lot of wild plant foods are a little bit bitter. And that's actually really good for our bodies. There's a lot of benefits that we get to bitter. And so when we completely cut that out of our palate and our taste buds, there's a lot of things that aren't happening within our senses and aren't happening within our bodies. So also, we're really oriented towards audio, but we tend to tune out a lot of what we're hearing, partly because we have to, because we're so assaulted by all of these sounds as modern humans. Our nervous systems would be completely freaked out if we paid attention to every car alarm, you know, and every siren and that kind of thing. But can we draw back out our awareness of the more subtle sounds? the bird songs? Can we tell the difference between a bird singing contentedly or a bird alarming because it's being stalked by a neighborhood cat? Or can we even draw out the senses to where we know what's going on in the greater world around us by the way the birds are acting or the animals are acting? So all of these are some of those senses. So not just necessarily the five senses that we're most familiar with, but the subtleties within those senses and what they mean to us, how they let us inform our lives and what's going on. I mean, there's countless stories of people who have been out hiking and because they knew to pay attention to the bird songs, they were able to know when either a human or a predator, a mountain lion or a bear, um, well, bears aren't really predatory on humans, but they can be, grizzlies can be. Um, so, you know, it actually can affect our lives in real ways. 
to be paying more attention and more tuned in to what's happening in the world around us, as well as on that kind of deeper internal level. It's interesting. Um, Nicole and I, we had a, a, not a whole big section, but we had a, a pretty decent portion of our discussion about birdsong and the importance of, of birdsong, regardless of where you are. I mean, we were talking specifically in the context of being in the mountains or out in nature. Um, for example, I think it was yesterday, two days ago, I had a cool experience two mornings ago. I was taking you know, my dog for a walk around a park. We have a, a beautiful park with like a you know, mile and a half, pretty decent sized walking course. And it was funny, I was lamenting. It used to be a little bit more wild with longer grasses and, and um, pheasants used to live there, you know, invasive species but pheasants used to live there and it was great um and they, the nice thing about invasive species is you can feel pretty good harvesting them and eating them yeah right and and they look beautiful um so there was pheasants there in the long grasses and it was just a beautiful environment and that since been cut down so I was just kind of like in my mind lamenting that I don't walk with headphones in I try to to keep open and um I heard it sounded just like a woman. I need to, I need to go do some research, but it sounded just like a woman yelling help. Right. And so I actually stopped in the middle of my walk. I'm in the middle of this, this thought process. And I had to stop for, it. I was like, was that a bird or was that a person? And I couldn't put it together. And so I sat there for, you know, probably two minutes just trying to understand what was happening. And I could never, you know, put a finger on if it was actually someone in distress. I mean, if it was, it was too far away and I couldn't, you know, there was nothing I could do. And so I kind of was like, well, I don't know what that was. Well, thankfully the next morning I was in, you know, I was a couple hundred feet earlier in my walk and I was right underneath a big tree when the sound happened again. I was like, oh, cool. That's a, it was a bird sound. But what caught my attention is it was a bird sound that I wasn't familiar with in my area. Like I'm, I'm pretty used to what's going on in our environment, but it was so different that it stopped me in my tracks. I had to stop and listen. Like, well, that was a sound that I'm not familiar with in my space. And uh, so I guess just kind of going along the lines of what you're talking about. Do you have a course that is kind of specific to connection for city dwellers? <laughs> I have a course way. called Connection is a Survival Skill. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's all about a variety of different types of connection practices. And that's, that's an online course that's actually open all the time. A lot of my courses I, I do just in specific times around the year. And I have one running right now in buckskin sewing, but the connection course is one that is available all the time. And I'll probably start shifting towards offering that as live sessions. Right now, it's just pre-recorded videos. Um, but yeah, I do. And then that's also a prime focus of a lot of the gatherings that I do which happen at this point once a year. I was doing them twice a year, but have needed to, they're, they're really huge endeavors to put on. So needing to guard my energy for other things too. So now once a year. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, that's something that I've realized is that you're an incredibly busy group of people um, <laughs> that are constantly doing a million different things. <laughs> that is so. So it uh, it's funny that reminds me. So this morning I was out um, beating on and swearing at my truck basically is what ends up happening. And it just reminds me, Ania, um, this is going to be kind of a huge gear shift. Uh, no, that, that pun was not intended, but it works. Um, <laughs> you were working on your transmission perhaps? <laughs> um, yeah, I was, I was just working on brakes. Um, but it reminded me of a long time ago. I was looking through some of your stuff and I'd seen this old 
post, I think on Facebook, where you were like elbows deep, you know, you'd basically torn your whole car apart. <laughs> I think it was a motor, something you were working on with the motor. And uh, yeah. I thought that was a, a really cool thing. Uh, it was a, it seemed like a neat experience for you. Um, I, I, you could kind of gather, I think, from the post and from the pictures what was going on, but I just thought it was cool. And that's something that I've wanted to talk to you about ever since then, because it <laughs> seems like there's a, I don't know if it's a philosophy there or if there is a just just who and how you are. Can you kind of talk about that and, and we'll see where that story <laughs> takes us? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I'm definitely someone who likes to understand and engage with the things that I depend on on my life. So I definitely am someone who likes to do some of my own mechanicing where and how I can. And that was a really unique situation in that my mother had often talked about me to her mechanics and talked about you know who I am and what I do. And it's fairly unique. And so they were always excited and interested in getting to know me. And, uh, and they offered, I needed to replace the head gasket in my Subaru. And they offered to have me come in and to have a mechanic work beside me, help walk me through the process, but I had to do all of the work myself. Um, so it was an amazing opportunity to go in and get to use all of their tools and equipment. You know, I don't have an engine lift myself. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, we did the head gasket and the, I mean, the radiator and some welding on the whole exhaust system. And um, yeah, the, you know, we did, we did everything that needed doing after we had the, the engine out. So that was about three days of getting to really experience what it is to be a mechanic. And because I'm one of those people who just wants to get my hands in everything, I'm definitely an enthusiast and I just want to learn and do everything during those few days. I definitely was like, I could do this. I could get, I could get into this. I love, I'm very detail oriented and I love understanding and teasing apart complex problems. So yeah, the combination of doing with my hands and the curiosity and learning new things and seeing, you know, dramatic results. Um, yeah, it was really engaging. So before that I had done, you know, I had replaced fuel filters and, um, you know, distributors and, and some, you know, very basic things doing my own oil change and that kind of thing. But that was definitely the most engaged and, you know, big piece of mechanic I'd ever done. So yeah, it was awesome. Do you still do your own maintenance and your own work kind of where possible or where necessary or? It's shifted a lot based on my lifestyle. And I yeah. would say up until a couple of years ago, that was true. And since the online courses and kind of actually trying to make these skills more widely available to more people, I've found that these days I have so much less time than I used to. So I'm, I don't do that as much as I did at one time. And I also just got a hybrid for the first time. So that's a little beyond my capacity <laughs> to work on. At one time, I was really, really devoted to staying with standard transmissions uh, and uh, cars that were easier for me to work on myself. But those are getting harder and harder to find, right? And yep. everything is computerized now. So I have gotten out of that habit, both because of my own life and necessity and the increasing complication of cars. That's funny. I uh, So I had a Prius for a while and I loved the thing and you know gas was cheap and I needed a better four-wheel drive vehicle for family purposes I'm like well I can't see having two vehicles and the Prius just sits so I sold the Prius bought my better family adventuring vehicle and it was like a month or two later 
um, that gas prices just exploded. <laughs> and then a year later, they've exploded again. And so I'm regretting uh, selling my hybrid. I have yeah. more than spent in gas what I got for the Prius when I sold it. So that was <laughs> right. kind of a bad decision. <laughs> yeah. Alas, it's um, hard though, right? Because I drove a Subaru station wagon for so, so many years. And that's what the, the photos of me were replacing the head gasket on. Um, but I just beat the heck out of it. So I wanted something small for the gas mileage, but I just destroy all of my station wagons, treating them like trucks. So I, I went up to a vehicle that's a little bit bigger and has a chassis that I can actually load with all of my heavy stuff, you know, rocks and metal and big wall tents and so many tools and what have you. So hoping that I won't just completely flatten the shocks on this one like I have with every station wagon <laughs> I've ever owned. <laughs> That's funny. Um, you mentioned when you were talking about the mechanicing that, you know, since the online courses and and really getting more into that realm, that your life's become a lot more busy, it sounds like, and, and you've had to kind of shift focus. I'm curious, is, like, what were you doing before the online courses and, and what was your, you know, before you had that focus, what were you up to? Well, for many years, I lived uh, as a subsistence farmer, largely on an off-grid homestead up in Northern Oregon. So I was growing a lot of my food and harvesting a lot of wild foods. And I was selling some at the farmer's market and I would go and do big seaweed harvests and sell wild harvested seaweed at the farmer's market and, you know, odd jobs here and there in addition to teaching buckskin courses and other, you know, I, I've taught so many things, a lot of, a lot of permaculture and farming things, a lot of wild food things. My background is as a biologist and botanist. So a lot of plant courses and that kind of thing. Um, but also doing a lot of ethical, ethical butchering and slaughtering and meat processing. So uh, that was a huge focus of my life for many, many years. You know, I built a, a house out of clay and straw, not cob, but light straw clay. So um, just kind of all of the really off-grid, more earth-based living style things. I have since left that homestead, partly to be closer to family and, you know, the changing of my life and changing of the world kind of necessitated that. Um, but it's definitely, that feels like what's most true of me and the lifestyle that I want to get back to. That said, a lot of the things that I've done have not been things that bring in a standard income of any kind. So I've mostly lived really, really sparingly financially, which makes it a lot harder to be able to afford land to do that kind of thing. So that's always been my aspiration to get back to living more that way and teaching more of those skills. So these last five years have been a bit of a departure, certainly from that life and trying to get my way back towards that and in a way that I can share with people as well. Did you find when you uh, went through that transition from the subsistence farming and, and that type of, of life, and, and I certainly don't want to, you know, I don't know exactly how you live what you're doing these days, right? Um, did you find that it was a, a challenge maybe mentally and emotionally to, to pull out of that so deep, <laughs> that such deep day-to-day -day struggle to live? And, and to what you're doing now, was that a struggle at all? Or am I like completely off base? It was a huge, huge struggle and a long drawn out process of slowly extracting myself from that. And, and 
a lot of it wasn't super by choice. Part of it was the community dynamics of the space that I was living weren't working for me. And it was really hard for me to do the kinds of sharing and teaching that I wanted to be doing in that space. So yeah, it was a massive struggle. And, uh, you know, I really had to had to spend a lot of time deeply questioning who I was and what I wanted and whether it, whether I could try something different for a while and kind of, you know, breaking down ideas of myself and what I was and exploring a whole different way to be in the world. So I was, my identity was so deeply rooted with my lifestyle and the ways I did things. It was both really challenging and really freeing to try something else, but also made it clear that that is what feels most real for me, most, most true for me. And now it's just a matter of how to get back to it and whether I can put my own needs aside for a little bit longer in order to give something really beautiful to the world and help other people find something closer to that. And so it has felt like sacrificing what I know works best for me in order to give something big to the world. Hmm. And that my time on alone came kind of in the middle of all of that. And I really found that that was true, that being able to just be myself in a wild living situation like that really inspired a lot of people to be able to watch. And so it's that's definitely been part of what has been my drive to share it in a bigger way in these most recent years, because I see such a need for it. And I mean, the timing was amazing that my season alone was just before the pandemic. And then that season six went on Netflix. So the first time that people who didn't have cable could see it right at the height of the pandemic. So it was beautiful because it showed people that there is another way right at the time that everything they thought they knew and depended on seemed to be breaking down around them. So I've just really thrown myself into offering it to the world since that time, because once I kind of stepped out of my idyllic little life and engaged more with the world, I saw what a need there was. So now I'm, I'm in this space of trying to refine the balance for myself after these years of really sacrificing who I was and how I was living and what fed me more in order to feed the greater world. So now that the pandemic is winding down, I'm, I'm in this place of like, okay, I've experienced living just in that lifestyle that was for me, but didn't give as much to the world. And then just pouring all of myself into giving to the world and getting extremely burnt out and needing to step back from that. And now, now I'm more in in this place trying to find what that's going to look like to nourish myself and the greater world moving forward. That's great. Um, it's funny that I like, I need a producer for the podcast because I've always got, uh, you know, what you just said, I've got like five different questions and they're all going to turn into their own little, like, you know, um, so I guess, first of all, so you said the coming on a loan or going on a loan rather, um, kind of came in the middle of that transition for you. Did you find that that helped? Like it was a good time for you to focus and center and, and help with the shift or did it, did alone, I mean, did alone help, I guess, in that part of your life you were in when you went out or did it exacerbate it and make things difficult? <laughs> um, what alone has a, has a tendency to do both for people. Yeah. Well, I would say the same is true for me. I mean, I, I experienced a lot of grief when I came back from alone because I loved that life. I loved that experience. And so it was something similar to what I experienced in my 
early 20s <clears throat> when I really had the desire to just go out and live wild and never come back. But I never actually really did that long term because it wasn't it wasn't practical and there weren't folks to do it with. And obviously, um, you know, the whole premise of alone is you're not doing it with anyone, you're doing it on your own. So that wouldn't be sustainable for me to be out there yeah. on my own long term because I am a social creature. Also, it wasn't sustainable because I was definitely starving to death while I was out there. So not sustainable in a couple different ways. But, you know, I knew I had to come back, but I just experienced so much grief and trauma being pulled from that wilder life that was everything I'd ever wanted in some ways to return to the modern world and feeling really lost, like getting that little taste of what you want. And then at the same time, the realization that you'll probably never have it in that same way ever again. Mm. Um, so, you know, a lot of people experience a lot of grief and heartache while they're out on a loan, it seems, but mine was the opposite. It was my return. That was so hard. Um, so, it definitely, I mean, it's, it shook up everything that I thought I knew and wanted in a lot of ways. And I mean, it's just such an extreme experience. And it's something that so few people can really understand or identify with. So at the same time, it, it connects you with this huge world of people who want to know you and think that they know you. And at the same time, it completely isolates you from everybody who you knew and were close with before because no one can really wrap their heads around that. And it's part of why so many of us who have done alone are so close after because they're kind of the only people who can yeah. really understand because it's not just the extreme wilderness immersion. It's also the craziness of having that and then having a televised version of that yeah. be shown to the world and all of the attention and life changes that come with all of a sudden being recognized for it. So there might be people who have experienced the deep wilderness immersion, but not the television parts of it and vice versa, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, it's hard to say whether it was a step forward or back in that journey to see what, you know, what my life was going to look like after this transition away from the homestead, because it was so radically different every way. And it changed, it changed everything really. Yeah from then on so there's no way to know what it would have looked like without that experience <laughs> yeah it's you know it's that's the interesting um one of the interesting things to me is you know we don't really talk a, a lot about alone on the podcast um but one of the very interesting things to me and and in fact it actually kind of it it challenged me and my my project to be honest for quite a while was hearing the the aftermath and it's it's different for everybody right um, you know, it, it seems like certainly your experience, I, I don't know that it's one, it, it, it's unique cause it's yours. Um, I think this is the first I've heard of, of that level, right? I know that Justin from season two, he had shared that, um, for him, you know, the trauma was coming home kind of the same. It sounds like maybe similar for him, you know, getting back into like the world and like cars and those types of things was just very, very traumatic. Um, yeah, it reminds me of, um, Callie North, she had like a car accident <laughs> in, she was in Patagonia really car accident, like the day after she comes out, I was like, man, I, uh, that would not, that would not be good. Um, but it really challenged my thoughts. Like, is, is this fair to, <laughs> to come on and, and talk? But, um, I guess just for you, I, you know, I've, I mentioned this to other people, but you know, there really is only at this point, 
what, 90 people, 100 people, I guess, with the double season. Or no, it's 90 because it's summer we're coming back. There's roughly 90 people in the world that understand your experience and that's it. I don't, you know, I mean, you're the 22nd person I've talked to. So I've, I've had great conversations and I have learned things, <laughs> but I don't understand those things. You know, we've mentioned before that basically that experience is it's you all. And then there's a handful of people that occasionally will have something terrible go wrong. And, you know, but even that doesn't really exist for that duration anymore. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very lonely and, and I certainly can't understand that experience. So thank you for sharing. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I think that like, that's absolutely true that it's a small handful of folks who understand it, but everyone has such a different and unique experience also. I mean, I think a lot of people, the vast majority of the people from my observations and a lot of the folks I've actually talked to, well, I should say, actually, most of the people that I'm closest with are people who experience something more similar to myself. But it seems that the vast majority of folks experience the trauma while they're out there and not upon the return as much. It's a difficult integration for most people, Mm -hmm. but a lot of folks are not having much fun out there. They're suffering when they're out there. And for me, it was the most beautiful experience of my life. And I loved every second of it, even the parts that were really challenging or uncomfortable or brutally difficult in some ways. It was still so raw and so real. And I loved that. So so it's a pretty select group amongst those 90 folks or however many it is who also have the experience of really sinking into something so magical and beautiful as opposed to just wanting to go home and choosing not to. Yeah. That makes sense. No, that, I mean, it, (laughs) it makes sense on a level, right? It it doesn't, I, I understand it, but I don't understand it. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to make an assumption here. You had mentioned, and I, it's funny, I'd never put all of that together as far as kind of your season is that interesting Goldilocks season. So I'm going to ask a question. It's going to be a huge assumption, and I'm just interested to see what the response is. So I was talking to Megan Hanacek from season three, Mm -hmm. and on our episode, she had mentioned that like the day after, like the day that lockdowns were announced, and then the day after lockdowns, she had like 800 and 600 friend requests and messages on Facebook. But I never put together that your season was kind of the Goldilocks, how you just mentioned it perfectly of, you know, when your season ended when the pandemic started getting on Netflix, um, did you just get blasted on emails and social media and everything when when those things kind of started coming together? You know, it's funny. One, I get blasted with Facebook stuff so much that I actually don't even pay attention to friends requests. It's I just can't. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know that my season had gone on Netflix. My cousin posted on Facebook a photo of like the homepage of Netflix and it was me, you yeah. know, and, and alone is right. It starts with the A's. So it's at the top of the Netflix thing. And there's my face as the poster child of alone on Netflix. <laughs> and so that was the first way that I even knew it was going. It's not like they wrote us and let us know ahead of time, you know, just so you know, you're about to be exposed to a whole new world of people. Um, so, so yeah, I had noticed a huge surge in in like Instagram numbers, but because Facebook, I get bombarded anyway. I I didn't have very good foreknowledge of what it was going to be like and what it was going to do to my life. So I didn't have very good boundaries and I made myself too available to folks, I would say, and like tried to write, you know, a 
a handwritten response or not handwritten, but like actually personal response to yeah. everyone who emailed me. And I realized that I just had to stop doing that. So I had already kind of stopped being as available by the time the pandemic hit. But yeah, it was pretty shocking for sure. It was pretty huge surge at that time. But um, I think that probably because I think that the experience of folks from the earlier seasons is probably different because the show wasn't nearly as popular then. Mm -hmm. So they were stepping into something different. And then when the pandemic hit, that explosion was probably more contrast to them than the folks who were on later when the show had already built a lot more numbers of, of viewers and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I guess for you, and I, we've, I don't think we've ever really discussed this with anyone before, but I guess for you, coming from, you know, where you were, it, it really is interesting, like, where, where you were when you launched versus, like, where you're at now. I mean, that's, I mean, it, it, I can imagine it's pretty, you know, pretty opposite, especially with the social media and the attention and the outreach and stuff. Um, what was that like? I mean, was it very, I mean, how hard was it for you to to get used to that and for your mind and your body to to transition into that that type of connectedness if you will yeah it was it was really challenging i didn't really like it <laughs> um you know like i saw it as useful so i guess you know our society has this idea that lots of public attention and, you know, I don't know what other word for it, like the mild fame or what have you is like a thing. It's like, that's what you, that's what you want, right? You want recognition and whatnot is kind of built into some of our American culture. But the reality to me is that people, lots of people wanting something from you all the time. And honestly, very few of those people approach it in a way that actually gives back. For example, like I have Patreon and I have, I think less than 120 folks on there. And like, I'm, I, part of what Patreon is about is engaging a little bit more deeply and people having more window into my life. And I have things set up for, to offer mentoring where I get paid for it. And Patreon, you know, people support me and get more of my time and energy thusly. But, you know, I have thousands of people reach out and wanting advice about this or that or asking questions and wanting to engage and very few giving back in any way. So to me, the increased public attention is just a huge, huge drain on my time and energy and resources. And I'm a person who often hasn't. I'm very friendly and connective and outgoing and generous. And I mean, I just got sucked dry trying to interact with people and engage with folks and respond to comments and respond to emails and be personally available to this huge wave of folks who all of a sudden wanted to connect with me or wanted a piece of me or would even, it felt like sometimes make up questions about things they knew I was interested in just to get me to engage with them. And it's, and it's exhausting. So like, I feel like unless you have good boundaries or ways set up where you can engage with people in a way that actually feeds you as well, it's horrible. It's horrible getting all of that public attention. You know, like I honestly, a lot of my friendships and really important relationships really suffered for it because when you, there's only so many hours a day and we only have so much energy. So when you try to be present all of a sudden for hundreds to thousands more people, how are you going to remain as present for your really important friendships and family and relationships? So it's quite, it's quite a stressor to try to juggle those things and 
there's no way for it not to impact your life if you try to be more available. And some people have done it the other way. I think Callie North is a good example of someone who's held it really well and had good boundaries around how she's available and not. And there's lots mm-hmm. of people who aren't available at all. And there's plenty of times that I wonder if it would have been a little healthier for me to go that route. But at the same time, you know, sharing these skills is my life and my passion and has been forever. So it's, it feels important for me to be able to give that to more people. But again, I did it in a way that wasn't very balanced. And I'm trying to find my way back to something that's more balanced and more self-protective and nurturing for me and my really important relationships as well. I, it's, you know, it's something that the longer that I've done this, I was, I was pretty, I didn't realize how naive I was when I started the podcast. Right. And thankfully I caught in the first episode, I caught someone, um, in the perfect time was with Justin. I caught him at like the perfect time to, to get an interview with somebody. And, you know, as it's progressed, that's the big thing for me. I'm like, man, I feel so blessed and humbled <laughs> that people are willing to share that time and, and to take that away because it, it is, it's a lot. I can, I can only imagine that it's a lot. Um, you know, for me, I'm thinking of, um, you know, I'm in between jobs right now in a good way, <laughs> not in a bad way, in a good way. And, uh, it's been fantastic. Like my, my life, you know, as I was winding down my last job, I was able to really slow down and, and de-stress and, and, and disconnect from a lot of things that I had to be so heavily involved in. And right now I'm on a, a short break before I ramp all of that back up. Um, but I've noticed that my relational availability has really skyrocketed, right? Um, as I'm not so worn down <laughs> with um, interactions and those types of things. Uh, it's been really great. I actually looked at, and hopefully no one's listening, but <laughs> I looked at Michelle the other day and I was like, man, you know, I could get used to this because, ah, <laughs> you know, I can breathe and I, I feel like I'm available for the people that, that I need to be available for. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, <clears throat> you know, it's only been, I mean, really maybe a hundred to a couple hundred years of people working to the degree that we do now in a way that is taking so much of our time and energy and isn't directly related to what we need to live, right? These days we work for a living instead of living for a living. So, you know, I've done the the subsistence farming and it's a full-time job and then some. So it's a lot more hours necessarily than than a lot of people work, but it's it's towards your own life. It's living for a living, right? You're actually bringing in your food and creating your shelter and making your containers and clothing and what have you. And so I think it's really, really unnatural the degree to which we work, you know, that 40 hours a week, you can't, you can't do some of the practices that I encourage when you're working so much, or you can, but you have to sacrifice other things. So I would really love to offer everyone a way to come to a little bit more balance. And I think that that's one of the things that's been so beautiful about the pandemic is I think a lot of people have had have had an experience like yours where like they're able to say, wait a minute, I've just had my head down so long just going forward with the plan that I never had an opportunity to stop and question, does this actually work for me? Is this what I want? And so I think that one of the beauties of the pandemic, of course, there were lots and lots of hard parts to it too, but was the opportunity to stop, to reassess, 
And a lot of people have gone really different directions. And I think that's really healthy. It's like the whole world had a midlife crisis all at once, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's, a good, that's a really funny way to put that. Yeah. I had never, that's funny. Uh, it's true. It, it's, that's exactly, exactly what happened. Um, there's another question that's been kicking in my mind. See, we're going back where I said I need a producer. I'm, I'm finally getting around <laughs> to my last question that I had, had, was thinking of when we said that. Um, you know, as you've made this transition and it sounds like your life is, and I don't know if it's a drastic change or not. Cause again, I don't know what you're doing full time. You know, I mean, I know what you're doing, but I don't know what every minute of your day looks like right now. I can assume what it looked like, you know, a couple years ago when you were doing subsistence farming. Um, that was more like five or six years ago. So it's, yeah, it's been a while. Have you, have you, what kind of practices have you had to incorporate now that you maybe didn't have to incorporate then? Like what kind of of effort do you have to put in to, you know, maintaining that connection and that, that trueness to yourself, I guess. Yeah. Well, could... I mean, in all honesty, I've gotten further away from it than I want to. Like I'm, hmm. I'm teaching it so much to other people that I have a lot less of it than I need myself. So, I mean, I certainly, I get out and hike a lot, but I'm not spending as much time engaging with, the plant world i mean actually it's spring right now so i have been doing a lot more of that just in the last week or two but um the answer is that right now i'm aware that i'm kind of failing a bit and that's why i'm kind of pulling back and doing some reassessing right now um the life i'm living now is really really different than what I've, has always been my goal and it feels like it's short term and trying to just crank some things out um, in order to get back to a life that has more of that balance. So in terms of what I'm doing to stay connected, for me, harvesting wild things is super, super important way for me to connect. It's, it's just like we talk about that it's important to tend our friendships and relationships. To me, my relationship with the plant world, particularly edible plants and medicines, those are really, really important relationships for me to maintain. So I've recently been harvesting dog bane for its fiber so that I can teach cordage to people and harvesting violets, which are an edible spring green and making violet syrup out of them that we can mm. jizzle on other things and harvesting watercress and nettles, which are amazing spring greens. And they're amazing foods and really nourish one's body, but there's something so much more deeply nourishing to me than just the food value that I'm getting from those when I'm out in nature harvesting the wild plants. I'm paying much more attention. I have to, right? Particularly nettles. I mean, they freaking hurt <laughs> if you're not paying attention. So, and also, you know, you're noticing what that they're covered in pollen, for example, because that affects you when you're harvesting them for food. You want to be harvesting the cleanest food, but you see that they're covered in pollen and then you look up and you notice that the maples are starting to flower or there's little insects starting to cling to the bottom of them and spider webs. Oh, it's warm enough now that the spiders are getting more active and there's more insects hatching. And so there's all of these ways that kind of like I talked about that when we engage in a real way with the world around us, it draws on all of these other senses. And we can 
we can harvest wild foods without that. We can just go out and harvest them in an extractive way that's just like going to the grocery store. Oh, I need a little of this and a little of that. But that keeps us in the modern human mindset rather than that more hunter-gatherer, engaged, wild human mindset. And so to me, those moments when I'm really deeply engaged and I'm paying attention to those things right in front of me and not thinking about you know, the email that I haven't responded to yet or a post I should really do to market my next course or this or that, those are the things that that keep me sane and whole in this wild world that I'm trying to live in this, you know, split of the wilder parts of myself and the really modern engaged social media person. <laughs> you know, Ania, I really appreciate uh, your candor and your honesty to, to be frank. Um, it, it means a lot to me and, and something that, you know, from the very beginning and I, I somehow have I don't know how I, it's not that I've lost this vision. I think we really do this on every episode, but you know, something that I really wanted to do when I started this project was so much of the media that we consume is my life is perfect. Everything's great, right? Like I, I get to do X, Y, and Z and, and nothing's, nothing's wrong in my world. Right. And you mentioned your dad was a, was an ultra runner. Um, you know, I used to run like crazy <laughs> all the time. And uh, long distances, long durations, up and down mountains, you know, just crazy. Um, I wasn't the fastest in the entire world, right? But that was really consuming in my life. And after a while, I realized, I was like, man, all the media sources that I'm consuming, all the people that I'm hearing and that I'm listening to to try and get better at what it is that I do are all the best at what they do, <laughs> right? Like, I'm not hearing from someone who's like, yeah, you know, I made it 12 miles into my run and everything blew up and the wheels fell off and I had to, you know, bail and run down a canyon and harass a bunch of people to get a ride 20 miles around in my car where I left it. Um, and so when I started this, I, went, I really want to get to that level with people where it's relatable and it's connectable and it's like, oh, wow, like, you know, this is Wonia's experience and, you know, it's not the same as my experience, but I'm, I'm learning something from her because of where she's at and we're a little bit more alike than we are different. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's, that's the reality of being human in the world today, right? Is that we are evolved to live a really different life than we're living now. And it's really hard to live 100% aligned with our evolution and be a modern human. I mean, they're, they're exactly opposed. So I just, I don't think it's honest to say, here I am, I'm doing it and it's totally great. And I'm super happy and satisfied with all of it because we're required to have this deep split in yeah. what we evolved to do and what we're doing now. And there's a million different places along that spe spectrum where we can stop. And some people are living a lot more wild than, than I'm living right now. And some people are living a lot more modern and there's, you know, every other place in yeah. between and the spot that's right for all of us is somewhere in between. But what, what I believe and what I try to show is all the way hundred percent modern and never looking at this stuff. That's not healthy for anyone. And yeah. we're seeing that in our culture, you know, Certainly. in our need for constant simulation and, you know, buying the bigger, better thing and never feeling like we're good enough and, you know, not being enormously healthy and being super medicated and antidepressants and all of these things. So 
so how do we help people find their way to the part along the spectrum? And I'm not really being a good teacher or being honest if I say that I have 100% figured out because the figuring it out and the curiosity and the trying different things, that's, that's the journey and that's the important thing. See, and I, I love that though, because it makes what you're doing so authentic, right? Because <laughs> when you're, when you're putting that course out, when you're, when you're writing that chapter, when you're doing those things, um, you're also saying, you know, you're not saying, Hey, go do this thing. You're like, let's go do this thing together. Right. You're, you're, you're in the middle of, of figuring that out for yourself. And I think that's a really powerful part of it. I'm assuming it's a very powerful part of what you're doing both for others and, and for yourself. So just thank you for the, the candor and the honesty. Um, I know it means a lot to me as, as having this conversation. Um, but I'm also pretty positive that to those listening that it, it helps them as well. Um, and I, I, you know, it's great that what you're doing is, is you're, it's blessing you, right? It's helping your life. It, it is doing things for you. Um, but it's impressive as well that you have this vision for others as well and that you're doing it to be helpful and to boost others' lives and are, I guess, in the process of using that to help you get back to, boost, you know, I don't know, it's complex. <laughs> you know better yeah, than I do, obviously, because it's you. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I mean, I'm at a particular, like, reckoning stage right now, too. So it's coming out more now than it likely does in a lot of my classes. And I haven't actively filmed a new class for a little while. You know, the, we were still very much in the height of pandemic when I was last filming. And I've been taking a step back from filming and putting out new videos and classes for the last few months as I've been trying, as I say, to find my way back to that, to that place of balance. So yeah, it's more up for me right now than it has <laughs> been in the last couple of years. Well, it's interesting that you say it's a, a place of reckoning. Um, you, you were talking, I'm going to, I'm going to make all sorts of things come together here. I promise you're talking <laughs> about your, about your, uh, you know, how your, your passion and your love for plant-based medicines and natural foods, um, you know, something that I've noticed is we have changed not completely <laughs> that way, but we eat a, a lot more clean of a diet than I would say is, is normal for where and where, when and where we live. And it's interesting. Um, I've now been able to notice it doesn't happen all the time, which I'm guessing is either a good thing or it shows that I'm not doing as good as I was hoping, but I can feel my body saying, you need to eat this thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'll be like, man, I am craving beets. I really, 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 really want pickled beets and, and I have to eat pickled beets. Or, you know, the other day it was like, I, I really need to have um, these tomatoes that we bottled last year with my eggs this morning. It was like, it wasn't even a, a question. I was like, no, I have to have this, right? <laughs> and so our body, when you get connected to yourself, I, I and you know this way better than I do because I'm just saying what I've experienced and you probably actually understand it. I mean, I understand the vitamins and what your body needs to survive, but you know, your body will tell you what it needs if you're listening. It will say, you need to eat that thing because I need what's in that thing. Um, and I think our, our minds and our spirits do the same thing. Um, yeah. but it's really hard to stop 
and to listen, right? I mentioned I'm going through this work transition and I, I had an experience a couple of months ago where I was able to work more in a connected way with people as opposed to process. And it was a, a very people-oriented day <laughs> out of like two years. And that started this thing in my spirit that was like, you need to feed that. And, you know, anyway, so our, our minds and our bodies will give us these reckonings and they'll give us these things. It's just, can we hear it? And are we willing to respond? Exactly that. And we have to be in a place of more pause generally in order to hear it. Right. And that's what I was saying, you know, before the pandemic, when we just had our head downs and we would go, go, go. And yet it's not exactly working and I'm not exactly happy, but, but how do I stop? You know, because I'm already locked into this thing. And if I stop, then I can't pay my mortgage. And then my credit card interest goes up and, you know, like all of these things. And so, yeah, yeah having the ability to stop and pause, even if it's five minutes a day to actually let that intuition come out is super, super key. And that's some of the things that I'm trying to encourage. Um, but I love that story. And I think that's exactly true. When we pay more attention and when we give our bodies more of what they need, then they start to respond more and that voice comes out more strongly. I'll just say, be careful because <laughs> like you said, yeah. when you do feed your, your body and your spirit what it wants, uh, and it starts to crave it more, <laughs> certain things become very difficult. <laughs> yeah. But then so you just get be, to be a really be good cautious. example to those people who aren't paying as much attention, yeah. you know? I mean, it's it's one of those things like the the hundredth monkey, like we need so much, we have so much inertia in not making choices that are good for ourselves and our bodies and our psyches. And so it takes a lot more people in our world being really good examples of choosing that in order for more and more people to catch on. And then, and then it becomes a shift in society. Just like I think I've read that now naps are encouraged at the workplace. And at one time that was, you know, a horrible, horrible thing. But the more that we can all be good examples, we're actually creating change. It's just at a slow level, but it takes it takes a certain amount of momentum and accumulation of more and more folks choosing the healthier yeah. paths. It's interesting. As a as a biologist, you'll be able to correct me here. You had said something a while ago that um, as you know, this conversation has kind of brought it back to my mind. So you'd mentioned a while ago that the way that, um, we are currently living, like we as a, the grand we, right. We are currently living is full of negative feedback loops. And what you're trying to do is, is break that and get into positive. And that made sense to me. But then when you just said the credit card thing is like, holy smokes, <laughs> our lives are, are literally filled with negative feedback loops, right? Um, and so, and, and I could, I'm going to get this way wrong. It's been a long time since I've done any sort of science or biology courses. Um, I'm fascinated by this stuff, but when I was forced to learn it, I hate it. Give me a book, give me something that I'm interested in. I'll do it all day long and I love it. But, um, so it's interesting. Yeah, that's so true because you know, call it a hamster wheel, call it whatever. I mean, at the end of the day, you have to feed that beast. <laughs> Otherwise it's going to start hurting you. And the more you feed that beast, the more it hurts you. And, you know, it's so like with, you mentioned having to pay the credit card before you get more interest payments and those things. It's like, yeah, it, our lives are just essentially have become one big negative feedback loop that we're constantly trying to beat back the attack. But by doing that, you're feeding it and causing more. Wow, you... Oh man, I another thing I've mentioned a few times. <laughs> another thing I've mentioned a few times on this podcast is that 
um, there's things, it happened a lot with Carly. There's things where I want to just like, like we're going to pause. I'm going to take 10 minutes to digest that. Let my mind come back to normal. Um, but yeah, that, uh, when you said that, I didn't realize how profound it was. But then when you mentioned that you made the example of the credit card stuff, it's like, holy cow, that is so true. And when you call it a negative feedback loop, as opposed to a, like a, you know, the hamster wheel or whatever it, it, if you know what a negative feedback loop is, I guess it shows you how dangerous that is and how bad that is. <laughs> yeah. And then you, you look at that and then you look at the rate of medications in our culture. Right. And you see that we think that we can just keep going on and on and on, but we actually can't. There's signs that it's breaking people down, you know, yeah. I mean, from nervous system disorders and blood pressure and heart attacks and, you know, like physical dis-ease and, and mental, emotional dis-ease. And by that, I mean, not being at ease, right? But yeah. That's, thank you for the emphasis. I was going to say, I want to call attention. Yeah. Thank you for the emphasis on how you're saying that because it's, um, I've never heard anyone emphasize that word in that way. Right. Um, but when you say it, it's like, oh, okay. That, yeah. You know, calling it physical disease, but then you change it to physical dis-ease. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. I get it. I get it. Right. And it shows um, how they're related too, right? Because yeah. when we're not at ease and more and more not at ease over time, then it comes out in physical ways mm -hmm. as disease. So, yeah. yeah, certainly. Wow. This is one of those moments where I <laughs> uh, hit pause, stop and think for a few <laughs> minutes. No, because that was, that was very profound. Um, the, the example of the negative feedback loop, you've just given me, you've given me some books and now you've given me like a, a train of, I guess, introspection and reflection to, to understand where those exist and how to turn them into a positive loop. So thank you. <laughs> um, you, you talked about the, the, the plant connection and, and how much you love that. And, and it, I think it fits here because you talked about how it's one of the things that, um, that helps keep you grounded, I guess is, is how I'll say that. And that just opened up a whole flood of, of thoughts and questions in my mind. But I think the first one that I, I found was very interesting because it, it was something that I wasn't expecting. Kind of like that that bird noise the other morning, right? It was not something I was expecting, so it really made me pause. Um, you mentioned that that there are people and, and maybe it's possible to go and consumptively gather, um, right? And for me, that in my mind that triggered this thought process of, you know, the first time I harvested and cleaned and ate my own rabbit. Right. And, and it, it was consumptive, but it was also very thought provoking as a young person. Like, wow, that was a really cool thing. But then the first time I harvested and cleaned and processed and ate my own first big game animal, you know, that was like a, I already knew conceptually, but that was a, a mind blowing and, and changing thing. And so I guess I'd never thought of it in the vein of wild edibles that would be possible because I would think it'd be impossible to harvest a, a, a living animal and not have that get you in that frame of mind. Um, so it's curious that with the plant world, I don't know, maybe do we do plants not matter as much to people as that? I don't know. It's just curious. That was, it was an interesting thought. 
I think that we are a really biased society and we tend to connect more easily with animals because they have central nervous systems that <laughs> we, you know, they're more similar to us, but I mean, they're all living things. And what I think is so amazing and wonderful is that science is starting to catch up to a lot of knowledge people have had for a long time. Like it is now shown that trees communicate with one another underground, not just through their own roots, but through the fungal Fungi. connections that connect one tree to another. So, I mean, trees literally speak to one another. It's just not through voices and in ways that we recognize. There's all kinds of ways that the intelligence of the wider world is more and more proved by science, whereas for the long time we felt like they were they were opposed or light like spirituality and silence and science were, were two opposing forces. But the deeper we get into science, the more it actually shows the sentience of all living things. And I believe that non-living things or things that we don't recognize as animate are part of that equation too. And that that's more and more, that's probably the next thing that science is going to show is that the rocks are freaking tracking as well. <laughs> you know? um, all right, well, you heard it here first. Winnea, the rocks right, are right. the rocks are on to us. Yeah, uh, just recognizing the the ways that the world is more deeply connected and paying attention and interactive than we ever gave it credit for, yeah. um, which is all to say that, yes, it generally for a lot of people, it is easier to identify with animals and what it means to take an animal life. But there are lots and lots of people who also don't go there. You know, I mean, you yeah. look at the, the big game hunters who go on safari and the goal is to kill as many different things as possible, you know, and prove themselves in that way. So there's just like, you know, the spectrum from wild to modern, there's a million different places along the spectrum of how people engage hunting. And I think I try to keep the perspective that when we engage with the wild world and when we nourish ourselves through it, that the way that we harvest, be it an animal or a plant, can be as much a gift to that animal as it is to ourselves. Because most living things have a really different relationship to the idea of life and death than we do. You know, there's not a lot of elderly deer out there. Deer mostly know that their life, particularly prior to roads, I wouldn't consider cars a predator, <laughs> but most deer are going to fall to a predator. You know, they're not going to die of old age. So most animals recognize that that's going to be their end. And if we can give them a respectful and beautiful end and do it in a way that recognizes and respects them and gives them another life through ourselves, you know, most deer turn into coyotes or mountain lions eventually. So when we eat something, we literally are what we eat. I mean, we're breaking down the cells of that animal and rebuilding our own cells with it. So if we do that in a beautiful way, that's a gift to that creature. And just as the harvest of plants can be a gift to those plants. And there are all kinds of plants that have co-evolved with people that grow in certain areas because they're the ways that humans have traveled on the landscape for a long time or plants that do better when they're being grazed than if they're not being grazed and if they're left alone. So we have this human conception that the best thing we can do to let the wild world be the wild world is leave it alone. And I disagree with that. I think that there are ways that we do a lot of damage to the wild world in the ways that we harvest it, but there are ways that if we do it in the right ways that we're actually giving back to and nurturing and helping those plants and animals and landscapes thrive through the relationships that we bring to them. 
Interesting. Uh, again, there's like so many questions. <laughs> That's the hard thing about this is it's like, there's so many Not things I want to learn from you and, and want to understand from you. Um, but we, I can only ask one question at a time. <laughs> so I'll, I'll share a little story. So a long time ago, we had watched a, a TV show. I think it was a National Geographic special. And it was, I mean, this was probably six or seven years ago. And it was highlighting this new understanding of really the sentience of the plant world, right? And how they have feelings and different things. And I was like, ah, it's interesting. You know, I was, I obviously, I watched it, so I was interested in it. And it, it was no more than a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months later, where we had a, a tree growing in our window well. And um, I had shut the window and I had accidentally caught one of the little, you know, sprouts off the tree in the window and so it was in there for a while and then the next day we you know, I opened it and let the tree go type of a thing and I kid you not Wania after that experience that tree before it got removed from the window well because that's not a place for a tree to grow um but bef after that when I slammed it in the the window the tree like leaned away from the window right <laughs> I'm not kidding yeah. I'm not kidding yeah. and I wouldn't have noticed that probably if I hadn't have watched that show if that hadn't been brought to my mind of, of to even think to see that in the world. Um, but I thought to see it in the world because, you know, someone had mentioned it and it was like, holy cow, that tree knew that I just slammed it in a window and it tried getting away from the thing that slammed it. And, you know, it was mind blowing. <laughs> <laughs> so go slam trees in windows and doors and see how they respond. <laughs> no, don't. That's your homework assignment. <laughs> So anyways, that was just interesting. And then my next question, and, and obviously this is going to be in so many different directions, I think, but I have for a long time been very interested in gathering of plants, right? Um, but I'm also time bound <laughs> and I live in, in city, right? So I'm just curious, um, do you have any experience or any information or thoughts on urban gathering what you know what kind of is possible what to look for maybe um and then you know how does that vary obviously from place to place and is there anything that people can use that's kind of a general or maybe resources that you know of that people can go to if they're interested in learning how to gather but you know maybe making that hour and a half journey to somewhere more remote isn't always possible Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously it's going to vary enormously regionally. And one of the things to be aware of when you're harvesting, particularly in areas of high human use, is making sure that it's not areas where they've been sprayed or where there's, you know, other toxins, be it next to roadways where the fumes have been accumulating or waterways that might be contaminated or what have you. So being aware of the environment and making sure that you're not harvesting something that's going to do you more harm than good. And then of course, being aware of that habitat and how highly impacted it is. And if your impact is going to be potentially something that drives that rare plant. Over can the it support edge. The, so, the consumption? Right. Can it support your harvest? And can you do that harvest in the healthiest possible way? So that would look like, you know, if we're harvesting for edible or medicinal leaves, can we leave the roots intact? And can we harvest in a way that's going to leave the growing tip intact? Or is this a plant that's going to do better with the growing tip pinched off so that it's going to spread out more laterally from side to side? So understanding a little bit about basic 
biology and botany is going to be helpful. You know, when you take the roots of something, you're killing that thing. When you're taking the above ground parts, you may or may not be depending on the biology of that plant, but more generally, you're less likely to. When we take the fruits or seeds, sometimes we're really helping those because we're helping disperse the seeds. So again, that's one of the ways that engaging with the plant world helps us really understand and really feel more connected because we need to know a little bit more about the biology in order to do it in the best ways. Um, that said, there are a lot of common weeds that are ubiquitous in human disturbed areas. And the reason they are is because they're really well adapted to that kind of thing. So if we look at things like dandelions, you know, they've got edible greens, they've got medicinal roots that you can make dandelion wine from the flowers. There's so many different ways you can use them. A lot of our common weeds are similar. Mallow is a common one. Ground chamomile plantain. There are all these plants that thrive on human disturbance. I actually like getting stepped on and tend to show up in paths and that kind of thing. So there are resources out there that will, I'm thinking of like weeds of the West is one that talks about all of the, what we consider weeds. That said, it doesn't go into uses. It's more of a botanical guide, but there are guides to edible and useful plants for most different regions. And then there are some, they're going to focus more on those things that are not native and therefore are going to be more common in more different environments. So looking in your local bookstores and if there are schools that teach ancestral skills or wild foods or that kind of thing in your area. Hopefully the folks there are going to be familiar with the things in your region. So that's something that I would recommend. But in my courses, I, I have reading lists that I share with folks that hopefully will point them in the right direction for something that will help them to the plants of their area. Um, but yeah, if I just had to throw out a few plants to get to know that I think are going to be common for a lot of people in North America, dandelion, chickweed, plantain, mallow, pineapple weed, prickly lettuce. Those are some really common ones that are useful in a lot of different ways that would be a good place to start building those relationships. Awesome. Um, I, uh, Willow is another one, super Willow. widespread. Mm -hmm. Medicinal and really useful for basketry and such. So I love, um, I love growing dandelions in my lawn. Nice. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious cause I've, I've, it's one of those things where I've always been interested in it, but I've never taken the time to just slow down and actually do anything about it, which is unfortunate. It's actually embarrassing to admit this, um, <laughs> to be completely honest with you. It really is. It's like, man, I should, it's five minutes. Right. But I think something that I, I don't enjoy, I don't like to just Google things. I like to, I like to earn knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> And, um, so maybe I've earned this knowledge now and then we'll, we'll start to wrap up here. So I think you mentioned dandelions. We all, we all have dandelions, I'm sure. Um, is there a time, I mean, when you, when I see a dandelion and it's flowering versus when it's seeding, you know, when is the time to use what on a dandelion and, and what's a, what's an approachable way for someone who has a, we'll call it an organic lawn. Um, what's an approachable way for someone to to utilize those dandelions that they have in their lawn? Yeah, well, most of our greens are gonna taste better early in the season when they're 
first sprouting. Once they start going into flower, their biology kind of shifts yep. because they're putting their energies towards the flower and the seeds. Um, so ideally before they start to sprout up. So the youngest on dandelions and similar things, the, the tenderest, most delicious leaves will be the ones towards the center. The older ones are the ones, you know, the ones closer to the ground are going to be older and more bitter. That said, the bitter in dandelion is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just something that our palate isn't as used to. Like arugula scale bitter or? Well, arugula is so spicy. Dandelions are more, I mean, arugula can be bitter too, certainly, but it's different because they don't have the spice. Just not even it, just count. straight up bitter like pretty darn bitter and you can see the difference generally speaking things in that are closely related to dandelion i mentioned prickly lettuce that's one too they typically have a white milky sap the mm -hmm. more and that's that's the bitter component so you'll be able to tell how old they are if they have a white milky sap there are things that have white milky sap that are poisonous and the sap is a sign of toxicity but i'm talking specifically about dandelions and thanks for that clarification in that family <laughs> those that the more white sap the more bitter they're going to be there are also pain soothing elements in the white sap of some things in that family the lactuca genus um but that's that's an indicator that's going to be a little bit further gone and maybe not as delicious for you but the flowers if you're harvesting those for like a dandelion wine or something, which is the only real use I know of them, you can also pick the petals and put them into salads and such, but the younger flowers and then picking off all green parts. So only the petals themselves and not the green parts, the green parts are gonna have the bitter. And then for the root, often it's towards the end of the season, once the flower is already passed, that's kind of a general thing for most things that we're harvesting the roots of. The, the things that are, biennials or perennials after the flowering and leafing parts die they're putting all of the resources that those leaves were gathering throughout the season into their roots so the roots are going to be best gathered when they're not as actively growing so they're they're storing more in the roots so we've got learn to identify a dandelion before it's yelling at you that it's a dandelion mm -hmm. and then you can use the greens as any other green i'm assuming um when it's flowering, you can make wine out of the flowers. Um, the petals, is it, is it like a, you said adding to a salad, is it more of a botanical? Like what is the flower? Is there any way to describe it or is it just its own thing? Yeah. I mean, generally we're not going to be eating straight petals, but they're, they're mild. They're much milder than the leaves. And they, I feel like there's this, there's a line between like the, you know, components and what it does for us in a nutritional sense and kind of the energetics. But I think that it's tends to be a really brightening and kind of happy, like mood elevating thing to eat flowers. Cool. That's kind yeah. of the energy of flowers, right? That's why we have them in our homes. And so I yeah. think it's a similar thing when we're eating them. So yeah, it's kind of taking in the energy of the sun and the the vivacity of the growing season and what a flower is doing. Cool. It's it's reproducing itself. And so it's, yeah, kind of the most like vibrant and joyous part of the life cycle in a way. And I'm so we're taking that, that in. Yeah, love that. Um, and then the roots. So flowers dead or dying, it's gone to seed or whatever. Um, what is your use for the root when you start to harvest Dandelion that Dandelion root is typically thought of as a blood and liver cleanser. 
So kind of building the blood, the, the deep roots, especially a tap root of something like a dandelion, they tend to be where a lot of the minerals are because they're, they're going deep into the soil. And so they're drying up a lot of trace minerals and dandelions being more towards the, the bitter side of the spectrum. There's other things they combine well with like yellow dock root, which is another really common plant that's in urban areas and weedy plant. Uh, yeah, those deep, deep roots are kind of drawing up the nutritive and then the cleansing properties. And are you, how are you preparing the roots? Like a, just in a tea or? Chopping you... and drying and doing in a tea or a tincture, which is where we use alcohol to extract the components of the roots. Okay, cool. Well, thank you. I uh, So now that I've earned the information, I am going to uh, make use of my dandelions this year because I've always wanted to do it. I've just never done it. So thank you. I really yeah. appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, and when... I think, I think that I, I like where you say earning it. And to me, it's also, it's about relationship building. So I like to spend some time to get to know the plant before I want to see what it can do for me, you know? Yeah. So as you say, like getting to know dandelions when they're coming up in your yard and paying more attention to them and noticing their different life cycles and building that relationship before you start harvesting them. Just like if you meet a new friend, you're not going to ask to borrow their lawnmower the first day you meet them, right? You, you, hang out a few times, you go on a walk, you, you know, have yeah. dinner with each other. And then you get to the point where you're like, Hey, by <laughs> the way, do you want to come help me move? And I can use your truck, that kind of thing. So building a relationship with plants and animals, like we would build relationships with human friends and giving a little and spending some time before you start asking and taking. It's funny you mentioned that. So uh, Kalani, if you're listening, I want to point it out. I waited two years, two and a half years, three years. I don't even know three years before I asked you if you had a lift in your garage. So I uh, did that the right way. Thanks, bud. <laughs> um, so Winia, and that just happened like a week ago. So nice. Um, Winia, as we, as we wrap up here, I want to give you the opportunity. Is there something that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get into? Is there anything that you want to clarify or any last parting thoughts or just anything as we close up today? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that just we've already addressed it in a lot of different ways, but I one of the messages that I feel like is so important is the idea that humans aren't separate from nature. We come from it, we go back to it, we're part of it, and finding ways to remind ourselves and the wilder world of that is one of the most fulfilling things that we can do for ourselves and also helps the world because the more connected we are to it, the more we see ourselves as part of it, the better job we're going to do at caretaking it. So it's all, it's all related. And one of the ills of modern human society is compartmentalizing and seeing things as separate. And that's what's happened with ourselves, with humans and seeing ourselves as separate from the rest of the wild world. So the, the largest overarching part of my message is that, we are still a part of it and we can choose to cultivate those relationships again. And that's better for ourselves and better for the world around us as well. Awesome. Well, Winnie, thank you so much. Um, I, it has been an absolute pleasure to get to know you, to hear your stories, to pick your brain, to be taught about dandelions. Um, absolutely a pleasure to spend this time with you and, and thank you so much for sharing of yourself with, with those listening. So I really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And again, you can learn more about what I do by checking out my website. And I might 
be shifting to a different business name. So you will always be able to find me through Wonia, but I might be transitioning away from Buckskin Revolution. Not totally certain yet, but I'm on social media. I'm on YouTube. I'm on Patreon. I'm on a couple different websites. Um, so lots of ways to learn more about what I'm doing and to start teaching yourself more of the skills that, I, that I'm talking about and being more connected to the world of humans doing this and the wider world. Cool. Absolutely love it. I'll get links to all of that in the show notes. Um, we'll get links to the Patreon and everything else in those notes as well so people know where to find you. So thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, Sam. So